This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. Hi, I'm Mike Bush. I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA. On Ask the AMPs, we uh, try to take your toughest maintenance questions and do our best to come up with answers for them. So if you have a question, please email us at uh, podcasts at aopa.org and We'll get you on the schedule and so you can participate on the program. That's podcast at aopa.org. And if you like the show, make sure and follow or subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you'd like to get on our email list for our monthly newsletter and other good stuff, um, the easiest way to do that is to text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. And a little... uh, TextBot will ask you for your name and your email address and put you on the list. That's text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777 to put yourself on the list. So the lawyer sent me a $6,000 check, and I had to tear it up because I couldn't testify to what he wanted me to testify to. But it, it involved a Cessna 185 that fell out of the sky when its crankshaft broke. And it turned out that it was a bad crankshaft. It was one of the crankshafts that had bad metal that was the subject of that emergency AD back in 2000, AD 2021, 23, or no, 23, And it was, it was the one where if, if your engine was on a, a list of engines in a, in a mandatory service bullet and you had to go drill a little core sample out of the prop flange and send it to, mobile for metallurgical analysis and they would decide whether you had a bad metal in your crank or not and if you did then then the engine had to go back to continental for a for a new crankshaft paul you remember that right oh yeah yeah so at any rate the owner who fell out of the sky in this airplane was suing the mechanic who done the annual inspection in 2000 and pretty much all the annuals up until 2017 when the airplane fell out of the sky. And he was suing him because he had decided that the um, AD was not applicable by serial number. And he so logged in the logbook every year from 2000 up to 2017. And it turned out that this this was a, a, a Continental a factory rebuilt engine and never had the case split. And the engine serial number was not on the list of engine serial numbers in the mandatory service bulletin. 
but the crankshaft serial number was on the list of crankshaft serial numbers. But the service bulletin said that the crankshaft serial number list was a list of spare crankshafts. And the implication was that you use that list if the crankshaft had been installed in the field or by somebody other than Continental. And so he looked up the engine. He didn't find it there. He said not applicable by serial number. And so the question was, was he negligent for not looking up the crankshaft serial number also? Whose attorney sent you the check? The plaintiff, the owner. Oh, oh, okay. So I looked at it and I I read the service bulletin and I read the the AD very carefully and I decided that if if, if it were me, I would have looked up the engine serial number. It wasn't there and I would have said not applicable exactly what the IA did. Yeah, I would have done the same. So anyway, I decided I was going to, after I ripped up the check, I decided I was going to, just as a sanity check, you know, the question, the negligence question hinges on whether the mechanic did what a reasonable and prudent mechanic would have done. So I picked two of the most reasonable and prudent mechanics I could think of. One was Eric Svelmo and and one was, uh, was uh, Ryan Dickerson. And I presented the, the problem to them and I didn't tell them what my opinion was. I wanted to know what their opinion was. Eric agreed with me that, that, Looking up the engine serial number was what was called for. Ryan violently disagreed with both of us and said that the mechanic was negligent by not looking up the crankshaft serial number. And, oh, by the way, why wasn't the FAA punching his ticket? (laughs) Well, but Eric, I mean, uh, Ryan is an engine shop. And and Eric and I, uh, our question was, the question I asked the attorney was, why the heck are you suing the shop? Why aren't yeah, you suing Continental, Continental for screwing up the service bullet? Yeah, they have money and they're and the he, ones and, that screwed and, up. And, and, and the mechanic said something that was totally inscrutable to me. He said, you can't sue Continental. They're owned by the Chinese. <laughs> now, I, I don't get that. I've never heard that. <laughs> but but anyway, it's nice to hear that Paul weighs in on the side of Eric and me and not on the side of Ryan. But Ryan was absolutely adamant. Ryan's the engine shop, so he's into the weeds on engines, and his attitude was different than a general GA mechanic that would be just in, you know. Well, the real question the is, what is the what does the wording say? You know, and I'm pretty good at reading wording and parsing these things, I think. But uh, to be honest with you, you, you can extract sentences. For, for, first of all, Ryan pointed out appropriately, I think, that the wording of the service bulletin doesn't matter. It's the applicability wording of the AD that matters because that's true. That's take that. So I I really looked at the AD very carefully. And Paul, when when we're done, go go pull up the go pull AD two thousand twenty three twenty one and 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 read it. It is it is not very clear on this point. It it it, it is clear that whoever wrote the AD never contemplated the possibility that Continental might have screwed up the service bullet in that way and, and had a installed a crankshaft that was on the list of bad crankshafts but didn't list the engine on the, on yeah. the list of bad engines. I, I would probably have checked the crankshaft serial number, not because I expected to find it uh, or I expected that I should have. I would have done it out of paranoia. 
So to me, if they said, if it's a factory engine and they said, here are the factory engines, I would have probably relied on that, that I'm not within that serial number group. It was, it was a factory engine. And, yeah. and depending on what kind of propeller and spinner and spinner backplate, it, it, you might or might not have been able to get the, the serial number without pulling the prop. Right, because it's written on the edge of the flange. Yeah. 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 Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. And this is the only um, court case to come forward from this AD, even though other people could have also screwed it up or had issues with it that we know of. Well, I wonder how many of these crankshafts actually failed. I mean, this one, 17 years after yeah. the ADs published. Yeah, right. Yeah. Good point. Took yeah. it a long time. And a lot of them failed quicker than that. Right. And I had the interesting experience. This all came out in 2000. And I happened to be at the Continental Factory in 2000 while this was all coming down. And I happened to walk into their metallurgy lab where I saw their metallurgist staring into a scanning electron microscope, looking at these little core samples that were coming in by the thousands or hundreds or something. And I just said, well, you know, what? how, how do you tell whether the crankshaft is, is, is good or bad? And he said, come over here and look in this eyepiece. So I'd never looked at a scanning electron microscope before. I just walk up to this big giant machine and I stare in the eyepiece. And there's 12 core samples on a little carousel. They're, they're you know, the little things about the size of a dime that were bored out of, out of, crankshaft flanges. He says, which ones do you think are bad? (laughs) (laughs) So I looked at them and most of them looked like you could actually see the granular crystalline structure of the metal. It was kind of interesting. And a few of them that looked kind of bizarre. So I said, well, I don't know, maybe two, three and seven don't look a little bit wonky. He said, you're hired. (laughs) He said, said, that's all there is to it. Wow. (laughs) Our first question is from Chad, who is feeling the chill. Go ahead, Chad. Yeah, thanks uh, for having me on. Looking for a little cold weather guidance. I uh, fly a 2007 Cirrus SR22. It's uh, naturally aspirated with a Continental IO550N. I want to fly that airplane all year round, uh, regardless of the weather, really. So, uh, But I've had a mechanic tell me that uh, sub-zero temps for a piston airplane is not recommended. Done some mm-hmm. online research that uh, seems like there's some flying clubs and stuff out there that will limit the use of their planes in the winter. Looked into the, you know, in the POH, it says that flights below 23 degrees negative Celsius, uh, you need cowl inlet covers, but it doesn't yeah. say you can't fly it in those temps. Uh, so I guess the first part of the question is, uh, is there a temperature that's too cold for a piston airplane? Well, what yeah, they, but your mechanic would not last very long in Alaska. Don't, Alaska don't, I was yeah. going to say, don't <laughs> ask your mechanic, ask an Alaskan bush pilot. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there is absolutely no problem flying in, in cold air. The only problem is starting yeah. in cold air. That and cold it's very, oil. Very, it's very important to preheat the engine anytime you're starting in sub-freezing temperatures. 
once the engine is running, it's uh, you know, it's a non-issue. The, the engine is generating its own heat. Okay. Yeah. So Adrian, I think Adrian just flew his Bonanza over the pole, over the North Pole, over yeah. the North Pole, and I think what do you say his oil temperatures maximum oil temperatures? I don't know, hundred and ten degrees or something. I don't think we're supposed to talk about it because I, I don't think he wanted anybody to know. But it was low. like, yeah, really cold. So yeah. let, let, let's talk about that. <laughs> you, you, if you're flying in very frigid air, you're, you're going to probably have pretty low oil temperatures and pretty low cylinder head temperatures. The only bad thing about low oil temperatures is that the um, it doesn't get a chance to boil off the moisture that's in the oil. But if if you're flying in the frigid temperatures like that, there isn't going to be any moisture in the air to begin with. That's so true. you probably don't have to, to worry too much about that. Low cylinder head temperatures, really the only negative thing about low cylinder head temperatures is if they if they get so low that that you have lead scavenging problems. And you, so all you need to do is keep it, keep an eye out on your spark plugs every time you uh, pull them every hundred hours to, to clean them and gap them and rotate them and see if there's any abnormal amount of lead buildup on the spark plugs. If there's not, then don't worry about it. Okay. Well, so the second part of my question was that when I do fly it in cold temperatures, I'm getting oil temps of like 114 degrees, which is just barely into the green on the Cirrus. And so, and then super cold cylinder head temperatures flying lean of peak. So should I fly a rich of peak, which will raise those temps or should I be slapped for even thinking that? <laughs> well, I, I don't really understand why, why there's a, a, a bottom of the green on oil temperature to to be honest with you if if you're flying in cold weather you're going to be using a multivis oil obviously and the multivis oil is is very pourable even at very cold te- cold temperatures so it, it it you know maybe that that red line was set back in the days when multivis oil was not being used or something like that but uh, i i I, I wouldn't be too concerned about that. The really the only the only big issue is is moisture buildup, and that's that's not terrible because you're going to be flying all the time, right? And the uh, when you were talking about the lead buildup in the cylinder, is that something that well then when I'm flying in the summer and the hot temperatures and it's getting hot would be kind of counterbalancing that, or is that no, what, what, typically once once lead deposits form in the combustion chamber, they they pretty much stay there. Unless you get detonation, you can clean them up. They're, 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 <laughs> clean. Yeah, you can you can put the cylinder in a light detonation, or a light combing has some weird procedure with with walnut shells or something to yeah. be blast off. You just live uh, with it. Lead deposits, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't worry it, too much about it. It's not a problem in again, the cylinder. Yeah, it's it's a good idea to to keep an eye on it. Um, hopefully, any every time you have the spark plugs out, you stick a borescope in, look around. Um, if you're not seeing abnormally heavy lead deposits, then it's not something to worry about. It's mostly a problem with your valves. If if you do get deposits on the valve seats, then they'll not seal very well. But you can clean that part. Don't worry about cleaning the piston face or cleaning the cylinder or anything you, like you that. You could consider possibly adding tcp to your fuel 
if you're doing a lot of the cold weather operations to, for, for additional lead scavenging. Okay. So it, your mechanic was very interesting to me. He said sub-zero. Did he specify Fahrenheit <laughs> which, or which centigrade <laughs> or yeah, Kelvin? Yeah, that 23 is 23C is pretty low. <laughs> and, and I, but I figured out why he said this. I, I know you guys think I'm nuts. He's afraid that you're going to get out in sub-zero temperatures and something and, go wrong. And call him. And call him to come out and work on your airplane. <laughs> this has nothing to do with That's whether the funny. airplane is flyable because clearly in the POH, does, yeah. cold temperatures are fine. This is wow. this is all about your mechanic. And you know what? The more I think about it, I like your mechanic. I think that's a great answer. That's, he's spot on. Yeah, I thought that was not. I'm like, man, that sounds off. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So figure it ask the experts. Yeah. Read some books about Alaska bush flying. You'll get a sense for what you have to do so, with cold airplanes. So, Paul, you, you think what the mechanic really meant was it, it's a bad idea to fly an airplane in sub-zero temperatures if you want me to work on that's it. Exactly yeah, that's exactly what, what I'm thinking. Said. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's funny. Yeah. I watch, sometimes funny. you see the, the reality shows with the Alaskan airline guys and all that. There's no such thing as summer up there. On a hot day, they're still wearing coats. And, and I watch them out there. You know, they have to encapsulate the airplane in a parka every night just so that the oil won't totally freeze. And I'm thinking, I would never survive up there. To me, that's just, that's <laughs> well, just off limits. Yeah, I, I, I knew a, a bush pilot up there that, that, a long time ago. who, who he, he flew a, a Super Cub, and his routine was, at the end of the day of flying in the winter, he would drain the oil into oh, a in, into a bucket, bring it inside, oh, inside. Yeah. <laughs> sit it on his Franklin stove, and then in the morning he would pour it back into the <laughs> Oh gosh. Sounds like yeah, a lot of work. That's a lot of work. That's a, that's just not right. <laughs> but it's, there, it's a you. novel approach to preheating. <laughs> yeah. Those those guys, man, they they deserve an awful lot. That's that's yeah. that that takes that's yes. fortitude. That's what that is. Those people are strong. But man, he had stick and rudder skills to to die for. He he would land that thing on gravel bars, all sorts of weird places, and he really knew that airplane. I love watching some of those videos, the places those people land. But sorry, off topic. But I digress. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> what what yeah. was the topic? Yeah. What was? <laughs> But Chad's Cold. flying a Cirrus down Cold. in the lower 40s, yeah. so down <laughs> I in the lower 40s. Yeah, you get the engine started, you're good to go. And boy, is there a winter great? Is there a winterization kit for a Cirrus, I wonder? Yeah, oh, they've got plates. That. Yeah, there's plates that go in the front. I've never seen any. And uh, all the single-engine Cessnas have the winterization plates as well. And you'll see the, the nut plates in the cowling. For mounting, yeah, those. I mean, considering the fact that the Cirrus is is built in Duluth, you yeah, think right. that they'd have that pretty well figured out. <laughs> yeah, I for, mean, for a mechanic to say it's not a good idea to fly a, a Cirrus in cold weather, he he sort of forgets where it came where from. where it came from, and they leave out. <laughs> Maybe of Duluth the plastic every gets day. brittle or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> he also told me not to fly at Lena Peak, so we don't, oh, we don't really believe him oh. anymore. Anyway, oh, new yeah, mechanic, you're, you're going to have yeah. to get a different mechanic, or just yeah, don't, don't tell him what you do. Well, well, don't 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 ask uh, mechanic CFI stuff, and don't ask your CFI mechanic stuff. And you... 
All right, Chad, you're yeah. making me cold just talking to you. Jeez. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks yeah. for the call. Thanks for the call, Chad. Dress warmly. <laughs> Bye-bye. Our next question is from Andy, who just might be the grandmaster of workarounds. Go ahead, Andy. <laughs> well, thanks for the intro. So my issue is... I have a 2020 LX7, a modified Lancer 4P. Great plane. It is uh, has G3X as the PFD, MFD, has sensors for EGT, CHT on every cylinder. It has uh, twin turbocharged, so it has turbine inlet temperature sensors. And just after my last annual, the TIT sensor started to go flaky on both turbines. So it bounces between maybe 500 degrees and a few seconds. So it's not physically possible that that's actually going on. I can key the mic and I instantly get a 200 or two to 300 degree drop in my TIT. So I know it's not physical. I've but checked. You, you turn on the faucet and the toilet flushes. That, that's it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not physical, but uh, it's somewhat <laughs> And the turbines, uh, depending on the phase of play, are actually quite critical. So my workaround is I know on the left side, which is one of the turbines, my maximum EGT for cylinder number two normally is about 20 degrees lower than the turbine inlet temperature is generally. On the right, the maximum EGT is about 30 degrees lower than the TIT is. So since I don't have reliable TIT, I've kind of defaulted for the time being to, to using the maximum EGT on both sides of the engine. And those are stable, always uh, right where I need them to be. I use this information to set my, uh, to do Lena Peak keep my uh, TITs around 1,600 in flight, my uh, CHTs around 370 degrees. So my question then is, am I asking for trouble using the EGT as primary until I can figure out what's going on with these TIT sensors? Andy? Well, why don't you just fix the problem? <laughs> <laughs> How long do why, you intend to go like that? Why are you overthinking like it like this? <laughs> yeah. Probes are not that expensive. And and by the way, it, I, I have I have a suspicion that it's not the probes, because first of all, the probability of both probes failing at the same time is very tiny, and second of all, if the probes failed then it it wouldn't respond when you were keying the transmitter. <laughs> so my, my 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 guess is that it's a connector or something like that. It's probably not not the probes. But why don't you fix the problem? <laughs> well, I've tried. I've uh, tested the sensors. Uh, right, the sensors read pretty much right what they need to sense as it's outside the engine. The wires, cables, the connectors, all test good on the ground, howling right. off. Did you disconnect and reconnect? I did several times. Okay. All right. What sort of connectors do your TIT probes have? Are they spade connectors or are they screw connectors? They're screw connectors. 
they're the worst to get reliable. Once you get them working, they do really good. Did you clean the connectors? A little Scotch Bright, little uh, Stablet Twenty Two or something? Yeah. And so during the next annual, I, my intention is just to to pull them out, do whatever I need to do to resolve this issue. But my question is, this doesn't sound like something that ought to wait till the next annual, and it doesn't sound like something that's going to require taking a lot of stuff apart. What engine monitor do you have? The G3X. Oh, G3X. You said that. Yeah. Yeah. The EIS. So there, there's a, an A to D converter in there somewhere that m- might conceivably be the problem as well. But it's, it's on both TITs, but nothing else in the system. That is correct. And oddly enough, the TITs work in certain phases of flight at certain times. I mean, they give me readings that I would expect. The readings are stable. And then for no... For, <laughs> now this, is, this all makes it pretty pretty clear that it's not the probes because probes yeah. don't do that. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking uh, a vibration or a change in flight control position. I don't know how the wires are routed behind the instrument panel. And you said it just came out of condition inspection. So people were rooting around in there. That's right. And it, you know, it happened after the last condition inspection. Right. How long after the last condition inspection? Oh, very quick, probably within a month, actually. At least it's consistent, right? Yeah. And you can duplicate this every time, which that's really handy. That makes it a lot easier to troubleshoot and confirm that you fixed it. But, but he, but he can't duplicate it on the ground, which makes it hard. It's, yeah, it's a bit of a pain. Yeah, I, I'm I'm totally with Mike. We, I don't think you have a probe. The chances of both probes, well, I'm trying to think. Debris can go through the exhaust system and damage a probe, but chances of it getting both sides and chances of it being intermittent in display afterwards. You know, if a probe gets physically damaged, typically not, it doesn't that's work. It. Yeah, it just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking you got something else going on besides probes. I'm hearing everybody say TIT is important enough to not just use a proxy until the next time you can get to maintenance. So we, we're recommending doing something about it sooner rather than later. And it and I'm hearing people say it probably could be fixed relatively easily because uh, it the clues that we have are indicating certain places where we can look. So sounds like you should probably schedule another visit back to your shop for this. Right. Sounds like it's just swapping components out and something uh, rears itself as primary cause. Yeah. If it's happening in flight, if you grab the right connection or the right spot and move it around, you're probably going to see it on the ground. Yeah. Okay. Well, I appreciate the feedback then and great show. I listen to you regularly. Sounds like a beautiful airplane. Yeah. Very jealous. <laughs> okay. Well, good luck with that. Um, electrical problems are the worst. <laughs> yes. Intermittence. Absolutely. Can't see those electrons. They don't kind of cause anything visible. You have to kind of infer what's going on. But yep. Yeah, but hopefully see, what, what Colleen just said is just so typical of A&P mechanics. They, they, 
they prefer working on something they can see rather <laughs> than do. something I they do. can't see. You know, a fuel That's leak. True. I can figure that out. Oil yeah. leaks. Yes, I, electron I, leaks. I, I, grew, no. <laughs> I grew up with with electrons long before I ever had anything to do with airplanes. So I, I actually prefer problems with electrons. <laughs> I don't like being shocked either. So can't see them and they hurt me. Don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good good luck, Andy. I hope yeah. it's an easy fix. Thanks for calling. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so you guys will remember a couple of shows ago, uh, we had a question about starting a carbureted engine and specifically about priming. So, Paul, I think you specifically said, well, use the primer because if it doesn't work, chances are something's wrong with your primer. And do not, you all agree, do not use the throttle. Don't use the throttle. Yep. Yeah. So two really interesting emails about that. The first is from Ernie. He says, on the subject of priming with the throttle, some aircraft are shipped without primers. Robinson helicopter would be an example as primers are optional. The factory checklist in the R44 POH specifies twisting, as in pumping, the throttle for priming before turning on the battery master switch. Lacking a propeller to act as a flywheel makes pumping the throttle while cranking very dangerous. Without a large rotating mass, meaning the driveline clutch is disengaged, the engine can exceed its RPM redline rapidly if it catches before the pilot has time to respond. I understand how fixed-wing focused pilots, maintenance people might miss this, but your rotowing listeners might not realize the significance. Do we have rotowing listeners? This, this, is, sure. this is news to me. This is news to me. <laughs> we don't know much about <laughs> helicopters. <laughs> yeah. And he's right. Yeah, it's a, a completely different system. Very interesting. And the engine, I'm, I'm not a helicopter guy. They're mounted optional. vertically, right? Yeah. That's right. So the car, and I don't know how the carburetor's mounted. Uh, is it side a side draft? draft? <laughs> yeah. I and mean, that would be like an HA6 carburetor, something like that. R-182 uses those. And that that's definitely a little different thing because if you use the throttle to prime it and you have an accelerator pump and it squirts fuel in there, it doesn't just immediately fall down into the carb air box. So that's, that is a different concept. I, you know, I never but thought it about a helicopter. But it isn't really getting the fuel where we're in a useful place if you prime it before you crank it. Yeah, yeah it's okay. just puddling. Uh, I mean, it's so, in the induction, but it's, yeah, it's not. Well, it might be on the ground. <laughs> well, if it's a side draft, I mean, it, yeah, it could eventually make its way Train to the it. ground. But, you know, if you're starting and we don't have a primer, I guess that's the only way to get fuel in there. Is to just crank the engine while you're priming. Well, but he was saying with, with the yeah, helicopter, because they don't have, there's no uh, counterweight, um, not counterweight. Um, flywheel. 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 Yeah, there's no flywheel. You didn't have a propeller connected to it. So what's the what's the problem with that? You just have to make sure you don't have the throttle very far open when you. Yeah, and I'm I'm not sure what the difference would be in. He says prime before you before you turn the master on. Is that what it said in his poh? Yeah. So then it sits there, and maybe they're assuming that it evaporates and creates a a gas in the induction system because it's evaporating. And then five minutes later, when you get your headset on, your pencils out and finally engage the starter, that just sounds really odd to me. That doesn't sound like a good procedure. No, but that's in his POH. But what's, well, that what's doesn't the alternative? Mean it's a good procedure. 
There's lots of stuff in the POH that is not a good idea. But what is the alternative? I mean, there's how do you yeah. draw the fuel into the engine? Well, if you at first all? of all, you probably should have ordered the the optional primer. I don't That's know right. why they would make it optional, but that would be the right thing. But, to do. but the right procedure would be to twist the throttle while you're cranking it, but but make sure that after each twist, you return it back to idle, so when the engine starts, it doesn't rev up real high. Yeah, I, that seems like a way better idea to me. But not knowing the system, I... Well, the problem with POHs is that, that they're not written by engineers. They're written by lawyers. <laughs> yeah, like, it's just yeah, the way it is. Service bulletins are written that way, too. Yeah. So speaking of POHs, this one, this one was interesting. He said, I'm a, uh, this is from Mike. He said, I'm a longtime Piper Cherokee CFI and owner of a 1966 Cherokee 6 with a Lycoming 0540-260 horsepower carbureted engine. I have successfully taught and used both the pumping throttle two to three times and the priming method when starting a Lycoming carbureted engine. The most recent FAA approved Lycoming operator's manual I own specifically states pumping the throttle in step seven in the engine starting procedure for an 0540 engine. And he includes it here. It says pump the throttle to full open and back to idle position for two to three strokes for a cold engine. <laughs> Again, because the book says it does not make it a good idea. Well, but he thinks it works. He's saying it works for him, right? He's saying it works. Yeah, he goes on to say. Oh, yeah, it does work. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He said throttle pumping done correctly is the fundamental way Lycoming states to start their carbureted engines. I tend to prefer the method as well and have found it to be the most consistent, reliable, and quickest way to start the engine. Well, if you, if you have a primer on that engine, its purpose is priming. So you have to keep in mind, you're, you're looking at a Lycoming manual, and I've got a whole shelf of them. The Lycoming manual has takes no account for installation in the airplane. Hmm. Mm -hmm. The priming system is added by Piper. Interesting. Yeah. And so it's an airframe thing. It's an airframe thing, absolutely. So if you have a primer in the airplane, that is there for a reason because it's a safer way to do it, in my view. And when you have that on that, we used to work on a lot of these Cherokee sixes with that 260 horse engine, the carburetors mounted on the bottom. And you pump that throttle, and it's a solid stream of fuel that goes straight up and then comes straight, straight back down. Straight back down. <laughs> and, yeah. That and gravity it, thing. <laughs> that gravity thing. And yes, it, it has worked fine for a long time in certain situations. It also has the capacity to light a fire, and you're stuck with, with an engine fire that you have to deal with. So absolutely it works. I, I don't think any of us disagreed that it that it doesn't work. You know, I always wondered why my POH makes a big deal about how to deal with induction fires because I've why. never seen one, but I guess it's because the POH sets it up to cause an induction fire. <laughs> well, I, yeah. I, I radically changed my priming procedure many, many, many years ago when I was um, starting my, my Cessna 310 uh, on an FBO ramp at night. <laughs> and I was I, 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 I was parked on the ramp quite close to the actual FBO, and the FBO had a big plate glass window. And I and I you I know feel I, this one coming. And, and I suddenly saw the reflection in the window of of a 
fire on the ground underneath my engine. <laughs> and of course, I, I I started the engine and the fire went out and stuff. But but it really got my attention, and I said, "Hey, you know, I better change my procedure." Yeah, there are better ways. I, I had a, a a fire under the left engine of a twin Comanche one time. It wasn't mine, but it was the same thing, and it was fuel injected, so it was a little different, but. There was enough fuel due to priming that went out the the vent, the induction vent, and boy, it it lit up everything around. Fortunately, I mean it's just a flash, mm. but wow. it it wakes you up. Yeah, there there are better <laughs> there are better ways. Our next question is from Daryl, who is coming in garbled. Go ahead, Daryl. Good to have you. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, do you need an explanation? Are you going to yeah, tell for us? Me? Yeah, tell us. What's, People what's listening don't know what's going on. Okay, thank you. I have a 1946 Air Coupe that has a Valcom 760 Com radio. The radio receives just fine, and it broadcasts just fine below 1200 rpms but if you go above 1200 rpms it's extremely staticky and no one can read me hmm. oh, now, I have- i've checked the antenna i've checked the line to the antenna the coax the coax thank you yep uh, i've checked it I've gone back to the mags and looked to make sure they're wired appropriately. Mm. Uh, everything <laughs> looks good. Paul knows well, what it is. Yeah. So. <laughs> I can see but, it in his face. <laughs> you can't. Yeah. So th- this is a recurring theme. I hear people and I get calls from mechanics almost daily about some sort of what's a 210 landing gear problem. And they say, yeah, we checked all the switches because I'll, I'll tell them, oh, so and so. Well, we checked the switches. Well, how did you check the switches? I looked at them. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, but looking at a switch is not checking a switch or a ground connection, all those things. There's a certain amount of touchy-feely. And I don't know anything about the Valcom 760. And this isn't likely about the radio itself, but it's almost certainly about connections. So you said air coupe, and the radio is obviously newer than the air coupe. How long has the radio been in the airplane? I would say it's been in there 15 years, maybe oh, yeah. 20. It's, okay. it's been in there a long time. And I might add, and, and please forgive me for interrupting. Everybody adds more. You can't. You just can't get all the information on the no, first pass. but this is the key detail. <laughs> yes, it is. He just, he, <laughs> the radio has been sent back to uh, Valcom. They checked it, and they yeah. said it's okay. It's okay, yes. No, no is, but the key detail is the problem occurred after he had an AV30, which is a UAV Onyx digital yes. route installed. So that's when I noticed the problem. Maybe I've gone back in the logbooks and yes, it's been there before. Ah, okay. Oh, okay. So okay. Here's you've you've taken the radio out, send it somewhere and you put it back in the tray. And I assume that it secures in the tray nice and tightly, right? Yes. And did you clean the connections? Yes. Mm-hmm. You put some sort of chemical stable at 22 or something like that on the pins? I just use a electrical connector spray and wiped mm. it off. Okay. So we'll eliminate that connection. 
Is there an audio panel in the airplane? No. So it just goes straight to the headphones? Yes, unless I run it through an intercom, just a Sigtronics intercom, and I've had that out so that I can check everything. Right, so you're operating directly, and you're using a headset? Yes. And how many mic can... I'm asking too many questions, I'm sorry. How many mic jacks are in the airplane? Do you have two headsets, so that's two mic jacks, and then do you have a center mic jack for a hand mic? One mic jack. Oh. And uh, again... I run it to a Sigtronics and then from there run it to a, a co-pilot. Okay. And so regardless of who transmits, it's got the noise in it. So No, I, it only transmits for the pilot. Well, you have the key switch on the pilot side. Right. Correct. But the co-pilot, the co-pilot can't transmit or can't speak at all? I've never tried. Okay. Well, so... There's a couple of things. You've got the, the key switch on the control yoke. And whenever you've got a lot of RPM, you have a lot of vibration. And switches get oxidized. So they like to, to vibrate. So I would check out your mic key switch if it's vibrating or any of the connections in there. So you, the key switch, is it mounted on the control column on the yoke? And so there's some sort of connection there. What kind of switch is it? Is it permanently mounted or is it a... One of those Velcroed uh, Tektronic things? Mm-hmm. Velcroed. Oh, so <laughs> get rid of that first. Just go get another one, get a new one. Those are notorious for doing that. Or at least go get another one for troubleshooting. But the other thing would be actually where you plug the mic in. The mic jack, the materials that they're made out of are, they're not pewter, but it's something maybe a step above <laughs> pewter, but just barely. And they oxidize really bad. So get they're, not, they're not gold-plated? They're oh. not gold-plated. So um, can't you just move the plug in and out to just clean them up? You can sometimes, but other times you need to get in there with Scotch-Brite and polish oh. it. Oh, wow. And remember that the, the ring that it first goes into is where it, is where it grounds, where that's one yeah. of the grounding points. And that it also, on this old of an installation, they probably did not isolate the mic jack from ground, so it may be mounted directly to the metal instrument panel with no insulators. We found out years ago that all the the mic and headphone jacks needed to be isolated and their audio shields grounded back at the audio panel. Yours has probably not been done that way, I'm just guessing. So you're saying run a specific wire back, don't just ground uh, it at the... Yeah, or if it is grounded, if it's mounted at the grounding point, then just make sure it has a really good ground. It's not going to make that much difference on this hey, old hey, can airplane. I, can I ask a silly question? Sure. You say that, that your transmissions are garbled above 1,200 RPM. Yes. Do you know that just because people have told you that? Or have you ever actually listened to what it sounds like at the receiving end? I've actually had someone use their telephone and record and play it back. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's good. <laughs> so so what does the garble sound like? Does it sound like ignition noise? Does it? I mean, you ought to be able to get a, 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 some information from what the garbling sounds like. It, it sounds almost like a popping. So I thought it might be spark plug wires, and I've checked those out, and they're okay. So my next thought well, was most commonly, might... it's not spark plug wires, but it's the it's the grounding of the P lead. 
that, that because that's what that that's the only thing from the ignition system that goes through the firewall and comes into the cockpit where it can radiate he, and make he all sorts he, of mischief. He checked that. I, I again, I've looked at those and those look good. I've even had a A and P look at those and he thought they looked good too. Okay, so we'll go back to my original thing about looking. Yeah, uh, and and and, and I. And, I don't know your mechanic, so I'm not insulting your mechanic, but but most 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 yeah. of them don't know anything about electronics. Yeah, they don't have a clue. So <laughs> shielding shielding is an important thing, just like the shielding on the mic jack. I was talking about grounding everything at the radio itself, and P leads and and Mike same is exactly way they, right. They have to be grounded at the mag end, and they can never be mounted at the grounded at the ignition switch. End. Right, and and they emit like a hundred to two hundred volt pulses. So you've got to have that shield in place and well-connected. That, that tends to be the nastiest signal generator in the aircraft. And especially if you said that the, the, when you listen to the recording of your transmissions, it sounds like popping. That, that sounds like ignition yeah. noise. And I would that, never have put popping with garbled. When I hear garbled, it, you know, that is not popping. I've, had, yeah. I've actually had both. Oh. So I, the first that I heard and noticed was a popping sound. And again, it was pop, 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 just all, with my transmission. And mm. now I don't hear that now. It just is garbage now. Mm. So I, 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 I almost have two different sound issues going on. This business about about garbled is is interesting because the, the word garbled to me means unintelligible, but to Paul it clearly means something different. Right, because in in my avionics days, whenever somebody would come in and say it sounds garbled, it, it would be unintelligible, but it would be unintelligible just like somebody's talking with marbles in their mouth. Yeah, that that's a garbled <laughs> sound. You know, when 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 someone says, "Oh, you just sound garbled." But if it's a popping sound, people don't come in typically and say garbled. They come in and say there's popping sound or there's interference. Yeah, or there's there's yeah. it's a definite description. It's in- interesting about yeah. <laughs> how different people. I, I had a, a this is slightly off topic, but I had an interesting conversation recently with an attorney, and I, and I I made some comment about no, we only had a verbal agreement, and he said. All agreements are verbal. Oh. Verbal simply means it's it's in words. You mean you had an oral agreement? You know? Oh gosh! <laughs> oh, okay. He sounds like an attorney, and yeah. he was right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I need to go get my Black's Law dictionary and, uh, <laughs> and see if I can figure out what garbled actually means. Well, I want to repeat that that originally what I heard was a popping sound. Now I don't hear that now. It is just, well, I guess interference. It, it just is unintelligible. Maybe one of the garbled things are so bad that it's covering up the popping sound. It's still there. You just can't hear it. But the fact maybe, that maybe I need to take the marbles out of my. Yeah, house. That's what I was going to say. Is, is the, the solution to garbling is always to remove the marbles from your mouth, right? But the fact that it's getting progressively worse sounds like it could be corrosion or some kind of bad connection that's just progressively getting. The, the fact that it's getting progressively worse should make it easier to troubleshoot. That's right. Wow. Yeah. Plus, it's a small airplane. There's yeah. not a Don't, lot to look for. There's not a lot. <laughs> there's not a lot to look for. The wires are short. 
But yeah, yep. those go, stupid electrons again. Yep. Looking go, for go to the, the wires are not only short, they're old. Yeah, they're, yeah, I know. Uh, hey, you know, you know, you know what he has to do? He has to degauss his air. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think air coop has any steel parts. Does it? Maybe, no, it's maybe aluminum. It it's aluminum with no rudder pedals. Uh, no, mine has them. Oh, you? Oh, no kidding. Okay, okay. So now, how effective they the are is another story. It, it, yeah. it can't be. A, it can't be bones. a real air coop if it has rudder pedals. Well, it's you know one of those wannabes. <laughs> <laughs> well, go check your connections. Check your shield grounds. And don't just look at them. Do some mm, do some testing. Take them apart. Yeah, take yeah. them get apart. An old yeah, use get an old meter. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Got to know how to do that. And you may have to get an avionics person involved, not a mechanic. I agree. Yep. You've been very helpful. Thank you all. I, I think I think you should take it to Paul's shop. That's your answer <laughs> to like half of these, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have space. Oh, it's, it's a small oh, yeah. airplane. Come on. It's a small airplane. <laughs> What's your hourly rate? Yeah. Uh, you can a you bazillion. can work on it out in the ramp on the ramp. You out don't of have the to ramp. be in the hangar. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Again, thank you all. You're welcome. Yeah. It's a good question. Enjoyed the question. Thank you. You're not the only one with this problem. That's I'm true. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Take the marbles out. <laughs> Take the marbles. Spit, out. spit out the marbles. It'll be fine. I love it. <laughs> Good luck. Okay. Thank you, you Daryl. All right. Bye, bye, Daryl. Our next question is from Chase, who is trying to help solve the mechanic shortage single-handedly. Go All ahead, right. Chase. All right. <laughs> Hey, Colleen. I, I I don't know that I can give myself that credit, uh, but Mike, Paul, great to great to meet you guys as well. Um, so here's my question. I, uh, I have a full-time job that's not in aviation. I am a part-time CFI, pretty active in San Diego. I own two vintage airplanes, a 41 Taylor Craft and a 59 Piper Pacer. And I am I just started, Colleen, uh, very part-time A&P school at Miramar. I want to get my A&P, but I realize that I have very, very little time to do it. I do a ton of my own work, uh, all the preventive stuff, anything that I can find in an A&PIA to supervise me in. I'm doing my own uh, owner-assisted annual right now on my pacer. I'm starting a project on another pacer. But, uh, you know, th- this is going to take a while to to do it this route. And Mike, I think you did it this route. My I question did. is really, yeah, my question is really, if I'm going to log all of my time, what do I need to log toward my eventual sitting for the A&P? What sorts of data fields should I capture? What sort of information? That's kind of my first question. And then really the second question is, is this possible? You know, can can I actually realizing it would take a real, real long time? Is it possible to get your ANP simply by working on your own airplanes for a really long period of time? Wow. I did it, so it must be possible. Yeah, and I've got several friends who've done that. Absolutely, but, but I think in Mike's case, he had a real mentor that was willing to work with him on that. Right. Well, I had several mentors. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't researched this recently, but I don't think that there's any really detailed guidance in the 
8900.1, whatever it is, the, the, uh, the, the Airworthiness Inspector's Handbook, um, which is now called FSIMS now. <laughs> it, it's a giant thing, so it's a little hard to, to know. But I don't think that there's any very specific guidance there into exactly what sort of substantiation an A&P applicant is required to present. So I suspect that every airworthiness inspector has his own personal preferences in that regard. So I always advise that that you you call the FISDOS and and talk to whoever the airworthiness inspector on duty there and say, look, um, I'm documenting my experience in preparation for having you sign off the, the form so that I can take the tests. And I, I'd like you to give me some guidance in, as to exactly what, what you need, you know, what you're looking for. I, I know back in the day when I did it, I created an Excel spreadsheet. And I, from the time I decided I was going to do this, I went back and reconstructed a lot of my time in the past based on logbook entries and stuff. And then I went around and I got as many um, of the mechanics who had supervised me that I could find to write a a short letter saying I supervised some of his time. And so I know that at least some of what he's telling you is legitimate. (laughs) And I think I think I I gathered up about about three letters of recommendation from supervising mechanics. Um, you know, some of them weren't reachable anymore. Some of them had just disappeared. Some of them might have passed away for all I know. But I did the best I could. But definitely, you know, all of the preventive maintenance that you do, it all counts. Um, but it's not stuff you're supervised. So it, that has to kind of be on the honor system. And and I think, you know, I think inspectors understand that, but go back as far as you can and reconstruct the time that you spent. And like I said, I, I, I created an Excel spreadsheet to, so I to try to make it look kind of organized and. You can buy We've had quite a few guys come through our shop that we've helped get their AMP and you can buy the, the AMP logbook, which is basically like a pilot logbook and record the end number and the date a description of what you did and how much time you spent doing it. Uh, and every, almost all the, the inspectors now are going to want to see something like that instead of just, oh, I spent all this time doing this stuff. Yeah, it needs to be a detailed accounting. Yeah, and there's no time limit. I found that out when... <laughs> so my first, the first part of my career was avionics, aircraft electronics. When and you so, say there's no time limit, you mean calendar time? Calendar time in terms of how far back you can go uh-huh. And so when I was uh, first applied for my AMP, I've been doing avionics work, installation work, which is definitely airframe stuff. And the inspector said, I'm sorry, we can't count that. And I'm like, well, I've got several years of this. And he said, well, no, we can't count that. That's not airframe. And so I, I made my case. He, he didn't like it. And I said, well, how far back he, can I go? And, he said avionics work was not? Right. Yeah, that's what he said. And so this is back in the early 80s. And I said, well, I have other experience. He said, well, that counts. I said, well, how far back can I go? 
He said, well, uh, there's no there's no time limit. I said, okay. Birth. <laughs> so, I, Birth. I, yeah. I, I started writing up stuff that I was doing when I was six and seven years old and oh, you know, yeah. went, to, went to dad's law book about the airplanes that were rebuilt and you know, I'm back in the tailcone bucking rivets, and I recorded all this stuff. And and it, you're reconstructing this after the fact. Oh, yeah, it, I'm reconstructing it after you'd the log fact. Contemporaneously. Oh, yeah, and I came up yeah. with years of, now, you know, by hours, and we kind of, because I used to go out every Saturday almost. I'd ride my bicycle out to the airport and, and work on the Cardinal or the Tri-Pacer or whatever it is we had. And... uh so I, I presented that to him. It took me about a month or so to gather that together, and I presented that to him. And to him, and he gave me the funniest look and just shook his head. And he said, "Okay." <laughs> so, <laughs> so when I went to the school and said I wanted to get um, an AMP license on, so I could work on my cardinal, they kind of laughed at me and said, "Well, we don't just do cardinals. <laughs> you have to, you have to learn everything to take the test." So we have, you know, and and. The one thing that bothers me about people that are logging their experiences, they're not logging any experience on um, turbine engines, landing gear systems on your tripacer, probably don't have a landing gear system, cabin atmosphere, building magnetos necessarily, um, or, or composites they're teaching now. There's a lot of things that you have to know to pass the test, but it sounds like what I'm hearing is it has to be experience, but it doesn't have to be experience across all the subject matters. You just have to have log the experience working around airplanes and then touch base and study all the subject matters because you will be asked questions about rotor blades and things like that. Oh, yeah. And helicopter so, stuff. Yeah. And helicopter stuff. Yeah. Incidentally, I don't know if we talk about this, but traditionally, one of the one of the best ways to, to gain experience towards a, an A&P was to, to build an airplane. And in. 2019, uh, the FAA uh, added a note to the Airworthiness Inspector's Handbook, which uh, a lot of us thought was crazy, that said that time spent manufacturing an airplane, including experimental amateur-built airplanes, does not count. And that was challenged about two years ago by an A&P who, who wrote a letter to the office of, of chief counsel saying that this does not comport with what the regulation says because the regulation specifically says constructing an aircraft is applicable experience, but the note says it's not. And uh, the FAA looked at that and said, you're right. The, the note is not compliant. Com- does not comport with the regulation, and we're revising the manual. So now, time spent building a amateur-built aircraft does count as against uh, as as A and P yeah, applicable experience. Well, per- so, perfect. So then <laughs> I uh, I just bought a a project pacer that's down to the fuselage, and I'm planning on stretching it and and yeah. doing an experimental project. So. <laughs> it, it, it it sounds like I'm doing the right things. I do yeah. have a spreadsheet. I went yeah. back over the many, many years to bring that back up to date. And after doing all that, I went, man, I only have six, seven hundred hours. I thought I'd have thousands. Um, yeah, yeah. So well, it, I don't it, I don't think that the time you spend refurbishing that pacer would have been at risk. The, I think the, the rationale behind that 2019 policy change, which which the FAA has now rescinded was the notion that 
until an airplane has an airworthiness certificate, it's not an airplane. <laughs> and so working on it doesn't count. But I think that was wrongheaded, and, and the FAA finally agreed that it was wrongheaded. The regulation specifically says constructing as one of the one of the um, activities that counts towards the experience. Yeah, the hard part is doing the schooling and getting the experience. The easy part is taking the tests. The, the, the written test is just memorization, just like any FAA test. And the practical, if you know your stuff, the guy's going to know very quickly that you're a good candidate and he's not going to give you a hard time. And don't overthink it. I think that's our theme today. Yeah. Get a good night's sleep before. It's <laughs> an all right. day yeah. affair. It is. <laughs> but maybe I'll see you around school because uh, some of the classes you can pick and choose. They're wonderful classes. We, My husband and I both enjoyed going through the college at Miramar. It was just so much fun. Take the electrical classes. I hear the instructor is really sharp. <laughs> I plan he, he uses polysyllabic words. That's <laughs> uh, well, right. thank, thank you. I really, really appreciate it. And I'll just tell you, one of the things I'm working on right now on the Pacer is putting in a, a brand new engine monitor because of the three right. of you. So wow. uh, folks are making fun of me for putting in that into a vintage pacer, airplane, yeah. but no. I... I'm really excited. So you, thank you. you. You just you just turn your nose up at them and say, you guys, just <laughs> you just don't know. That's very cool. Yeah. Appreciate it. Awesome. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for calling in, Chase. Yeah, thanks, Chase. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's a wrap on another podcast. I'm sure we got some things right and probably got some things wrong. So you need to let us know. <laughs> Not me this time. Please keep sending us your questions and try to stump us. Your comments and questions can be sent to podcasts at aopa.org. See ya. Bye, everybody.